Welcome, everybody. This is Phil Goldberg, my, the usual co-host of Spirit Matters. Uh, my buddy, Dennis Ramundi, who you're accustomed to seeing, is unable to join us today. So I'm uh, winging it by myself with my distinguished guest, making a return visit to Spirit Matters, Acharya Shunya. Acharya is uh, a, a welcome return guest. She is uh, a well-known and distinguished teacher, author, speaker, scholar of non-dual wisdom, originally from India, and the first female lineage holder of a distinguished uh, Vedic tradition, which is extra relevant uh, given today's topic, and uh, the founder of the Awakened uh, Self Foundation and the nonprofit Vedika Global. She has a podcast on which I was once a guest called Shadow to Self. Her previous books include Ayurveda Lifestyle Wisdom and Sovereign Self, which uh, we discussed on her first visit to Spirit Matters. And now a new book, Roar Like a Goddess, Every Woman's Guide to Becoming Unapologetically Powerful, Prosperous, and Peaceful. Now available from Sounds True. Welcome, Acharya. Thank you, Phil. It's such an honor to be in conversation with you here at Spirit Matters. Last time you were here, uh, I will tell our audience, uh, we, we did our usual thing of asking for the uh, guests' spiritual background and journey. And so I would encourage our listeners to um, listen to the first interview as well and get to know Acharya even better. But let's jump right into the new book. Um, let's begin by... Uh, asking you why you chose this topic. Why the goddess? As authors, we often choose topics. I feel like this topic chose me, Phil. The goddess wanted me to write this. I don't share miracles, etc. in life because I'm a Jnana Yogi from the Wisdom Path. But we celebrate a festival called Navratri, the goddess festival. And last time that came around, which is about a year ago, on the sixth day of Navratri, I was working on a semi-academic book on Ayurveda and Vedic psychology, near completion. And that's not the time you swing over and start writing a new manuscript. But I felt this the only word I can say is this inspiration, this knowingness that I must write this book. And when you go through the Devi scriptures, the goddess scriptures in India, um, such as the Devi Mahatmaya, also known as Chandipat, I would be fascinated when it says the go the goddess, um, the goddess made sounds like. Mm. Mm, it was like so much power, she couldn't contain herself. And we call it the Honkar, like the Omkara. And it's a goddess's Honkara. And I didn't know how to translate it. 
But I felt this hunkara inside me, so I call it the roar. So it's like Shakti bringing out this powerful sound of manifestation, which became the book. And probably I had arrived in my own journey, Phil, to a place where I didn't want to just sit behind my robes that my lineage provides me, behind the Sanskrit and the scriptures, the Shastra, to just create this image of near perfection. I wanted to talk about the vulnerability that with which I walk along with my enlightenment that I will not deny. And I wanted to also talk to my sisters. I've, I have been, I've taken avatar in a woman's body this time around. And I, and it was significant. It had its benefits and it had a lot of obstacles. And I wanted to talk about it. And as I wrote, the first page I wrote, I don't know why, but the more I wrote, the more I knew that maybe, maybe I'm becoming an instrument through my transparency, through my vulnerability and through my truth telling for a change for not only womankind, but people of all gender, because men too are forced to give up their humanness to be manly. And we're all either manning it or womaning it or we're winging it based on scripts rather than being true to ourselves. And uh, so it's a very unique story. Like with Sovereign Self that you interviewed, it took me three years to write, a whole lifetime to live it and think it. I with a lifestyle wisdom took me two years and a whole lifetime. This book, it was not even like, I didn't even think I'm a goddess teacher. I'm a divine feminine teacher. It's my private practice as a practicing Hindu teacher, Sanatana Dharmi teacher who practices God in non-dual formless Brahman and then as in form Saguna Brahman as Devi. There's something private. And here I am having a conversation on spirit matters with the with the with the with the person who who deeply inspired me with his American Veda. Oh, I appreciate that so much. Um, you use the word Shakti um, in in your uh, answer to my question. So that anticipates one of the questions I have. Uh, many of our listeners, if not most, will be familiar with some of the forms uh, that the, uh, the, the goddesses take. And, and you choose in, in Rora Like a Goddess, and we'll come to that, uh, to, to focus on three of them. Um, and I wanted to ask you to explain how the term and the, the reality of Shakti fits in with the goddess forms that people are familiar with. Can you explain? It is significant. I found it significant that that power itself incarnate is then incarnate in the feminine form and not the masculine. That itself in the Vedic tradition, in the ancient old Hindu 
pre-Hindu tradition known as the Vedic tradition, because Hindu is a term given later. The original term is the Veda, which comes from the root word vid, V-I-D, which means to be aware, to know. So in this conscious tradition, power, when things were being allocated genders and power was allocated the feminine gender. And with that comes connotations of power being nurturing, collaborative, mothering, and ultimately in the service of compassion. This feminine power is to everything in this universe in the Vedic worldview is associated with a, a, an, a material entity and a cosmic entity. And the cosmic entity with which power is associated with is the goddess. For example, thunderstorms are associated with male gods called the Maruts. And our own ego is associated with a cosmic god called Indra. Um, our health is associated with two twin gods called Ashwin Kumaras, all males. But the power within us, within an electric wire, in any any dimension of existence, if you can imagine any kind of power, the power of will, the power of action, the power of electricity, of fire, or thunder, or force, all that power can be rooted back to the goddess, Shakti herself. And this Shakti is not one goddess, she is one and many at the same time. Going back to that underlying non-dual trend that we see because it's so often confused about the Vedic Indian tradition that it's a polytheistic tradition, when really all of the many attributes of gods and goddesses represent the, the all-pervading aspect of that one supreme consciousness or that one supreme power. So Shakti herself, when she is gifting the rest of us power and courage and fearlessness and fortitude, then she becomes Durga. And once we use that and become safe and playful, she becomes Lakshmi and gives us abundance and also guides us towards Dharma and Moksha, which are goals to achieve. Dharma means conscious life for our listeners and Moksha means, you know, recognition of your true nature. And Shakti herself becomes Saraswati when she becomes our inner voice, the power of knowledge, the power of wisdom, the power of intuition, the power that comes from self-knowingness and self-recognition. So I wanted to talk about Shakti. So the book begins with Shakti, so people don't think we're chasing these myriad goddesses down you know down history or mythology and then i wanted to talk about her three chief facets which are often known as the feminine trinity the the feminine trinity we have the masculine trinity of male gods brahma vishnu and shiva so we have the feminine trinity of durga lakshmi and saraswati that worked for me shiva is generally paired with shakti we we hear about shiva shakti and the unmanifest and and the manifest um also people especially if you go to india if you look at india you see many more than three forms of of the divine feminine 
there's countless uh, forms. And one uh, that's often invoked is Kali. And so the question arises, why you, you focus the book on Durga, Lakshmi, and Saraswati, and not the others, and not Kali? How, how do you explain that? Because Kali is in the book. She's not the most, um, she's not the significant, because Kali is Durga. Because Kali okay. is Lakshmi, Kali is Saraswati. We have the Nila Saraswati, we have the dark qualities of Saraswati as Kalaratris, because so Kali is naked truth. She's not just naked in body, but she's raw and naked in truth. There are no illusions and deceptions, Akka. So in the Durga chapter itself, I, I cover not only Durga, but then forms that align with Durga, such as Kali, Goddess Ambika, Goddess Parvati, and their stories, because they all kind of belong to a cluster together. And then in Lakshmi's um, section, I talk about Goddess Rati, the goddess of love, romance, and sexuality. And I bring in Parvati again, because Parvati, who is the consort of Shiva, is kind of like the mother goddess. And I could have done this whole book from the Parvati's perspective. Like when, when Parvati gets raging, she becomes Durga. And then from her third eye of Durga emerges Kali, and then Kali becomes Ambika. And I could have done that. But I chose to stick with um, the, the, I chose to keep these goddesses somewhat distinguishable because this book is using the goddesses as a tool for conveying some psychological spiritual teachings that we can bring into our daily life. It's not so much as a book on Hindu goddesses, which then I would have to recommend some other books to really make yourself aware aware of the you know the whole wide spectrum of goddesses and and where do they fall along the line of you know which consort which goddess and who's a subform of who <laughs> this felt like a very simple and go-to map when like when you want to be safe in samsara or the cyclical existence of birth and death you want to up and, and you become unsafe from your own ignorance you become unsafe from your own non-enlightened unconscious asuric or dark states of mind the asuras or the demons are not out there but in here of self-doubt and self-abandonment and a willingness to toe the line when there is false beliefs like patriarchy out there that's when we appeal to durga and goddesses like durga like kali to really kind of shake you up and wake you up and then when you want to play and thrive in samsara in that same worldly existence which is if you're ignorant you're pain it's painful otherwise it's like a buffet of sensuality and happiness well then comes along lakshmi to help us play and to help us give back and finally when you've done playing and you're done giving back because dharma is the beginning not the end of our spiritual quest comes in saraswati to say wait did you close your eyes even and experience that inner witness of your breath? 
and then she takes us to our final journey and we recognize that the goddesses that we were looking at out there for sustenance and wisdom and insights dwell within and there i compare the atma or the the higher self to this shakti to this goddess entity and there i come to the pinnacle of bhakti yoga where it begins with me and the goddess being separate to, uh, like you know oh, please goddess durga help me <laughs> to me me coming and seeing goddess everywhere when i start beginning karma yoga and i start helping others too and myself and finally with sarasudhi i come to the pinnacle of non-dual bhakti or devotion where i find that the one i was being devoted to i find lives within me and the term is atmanivedan where you then start really revering your own true nature, your deeper nature, not your everyday nature. You, in a sense, Multiple already... Multiple journeys are happening here. <laughs> you, in a sense, already asked this next question, but I want to ask it anyway. Um, you, um, in your teaching, you, you call yourself a, a, an Advaitin, a non-dual teacher. A lot of people who think of themselves as non-dualists would reject anything having to do with forms of the, of the divine, or they would see anything that looks like uh, invocation of deities as uh, a form of dualism, and they would reject it and focus exclusively on the formless. But in my experience, some of the most distinguished legendary non-dualists also had a bhakti side of them, including Adi Shankaracharya and all the others. Can you explain the, um, the utility of working with forms like goddesses in the context of non-duality. The Advaita tradition means Advait. Dvait means two and more. Multiplicity. Duality means multiplicity. Advaita means not two. There is only one. There is one presence, one consciousness, the one self. And by nature, Advaita should not reject anything and anyone because there is not two. The, if at all, the Advaita tradition can include duality as well as specialized, um, what we know as Vishishta Advaita, where we, where we think, well, we're different, but we all come from the same source. I'm going to say this. Um, because it has to be said that the, the Vedic path is misunderstood, not just in the West, but in India too, in the modern times. It has been misunderstood because the Acharyas are teaching short versions of, do you want bhakti or do you want this or do you want that? The traditional path was that you began with Upasana Yoga, which is where you purify yourself your body, your speech, your thoughts. Then you are ready for karma yoga. 
Now you're on the world stage. You may or may not have studied a scripture, but you have begun to see that great presence, God, Goddess, everywhere. And so you have the Panchi Arjuna, five ways of giving back. And ultimately, when that has purified your ego even more, you go to an Acharya, you submit yourself, and then you are given Jnana Yoga, or the ultimate non-dual teachings. And all of this cannot happen in a vacuum. This has to happen in the big circle of Bhakti Yoga. And Bhakti Yoga also proceeds, as I mentioned earlier, from, uh, from duality, because that's how we begin. You know, it's me here, the world is there, and God, Goddess is there. So it's a triangle. That's how we all begin. That's how children begin. That's how humans with childlike or like a beginning consciousness, we see a triangle. Me versus the world, me and God. Then we go deeper and me and world become one. So we start serving the world and being less cruel in the world and being more dharmic in the world. And it's God. So now it's... Uh, two points, not three. And finally, when we reach the ultimate non-dual teachings of Jnana Yoga, we realize, oh, the world is in me and God is in me. There's only a dot here now. There is no circle, no triangle, no, no, no linear line. This journey happens through the systematic study of the three yogas within bhakti yoga and what happens is through this journey is your relationship with the divine absolute changes from being out there to everywhere to in here and this is the advaitic journey but what happened was and 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 when you've made that journey you can come back and sing a song to the goddess on your altar but you know that, that that deity is not what you're singing to. You're singing to the representation of that ultimate consciousness as a deity who also dwells inside you. So the difference between an unconscious person singing to a deity and an Advaitin singing to a deity is Outwardly, it looks the same, but inwardly, Shankaracharya knew, you know, my ancestors knew, I know that when I sing to this metal or wood or stone deity, I'm really evoking that consciousness within me. We realize it. And that's why at the end of every Vedic prayer, we have this thing called Atma Pratishtita, where we take the deity and we say, okay, go back in now. First, I put you out there and I'm going to worship you. Now you can go back inside because you dwell in me. Mm -hmm. So that, so this whole thing about deity worship or worshiping Saguna Brahman or Nirguna Brahman, this is all made up because Shastra or study, which took me 14 years. I couldn't even raise my head and give a speech in front of my guru. I just had to be quiet and study. And another 20 years of Mananam, that's why you didn't hear of Acharya for all these years, though I just lived a few hundred miles away from you. Why? Because we study the scriptures and then, which is we listen, Shravanam, we contemplate Mananam, and then we come to this resolute place and we see God everywhere, in the rocks, in the mountains, in the deity. And that's the true non-duality, in my opinion, and as per the Shastra also. Thank you for that.
I hope that uh, people take careful, pay careful attention to what you just said. It's filled with wisdom. The book has been called a feminist manifesto rooted in classic Vedic teachings. And one of the things that um, struck me uh, in having spoken to you before and in, in this book is you are both traditional and you, you are very careful to honor and respect tradition. And you are at the, at the same time um, radically modern and uh, in a sense, breaking with tradition, not breaking with tradition, but applying traditional teachings in a radically different way because you live in the 21st century and you're speaking English and you're in America. Were you conscious of doing that when you were writing the book and when, when you teach of sort of the balance between um, transforming teachings and applying them in different ways and at the same time being faithful to their uh, essential uh, uh, essence in in traditional way. I'm very conscious, Phil, of the opportunity I have, the world platform I have in this 21st century. I'm also conscious of the responsibility I carry towards an ancient tradition. I still have my uncle, who is the second Acharya in Ayodhya. We still have, we still train students. We still have a whole tradition to upkeep, and I have students from the whole world who study with me teachings by my ancestors and by Shankaracharya and the tradition. But as an Acharya, as a spiritual teacher, one of the, one of the teachings in the Acharya Samhita is you must translate it to the era that you are in. When Lord Krishna spoke to Arjuna, he had to speak based on the, um, it's an English word, exigency. Exigencies. Exigency of that situation. My writing is even better than my spoken because this still remains my third language. There's Sanskrit, Hindi, then English. But still, like, you know, um, what his teachings were, were based on he's talking to a warrior. And it is it really only, he begins teaching the metaphysical in chapter two, but then by the time he comes to chapter 18, he's able to really show them, you know, the full form. So we go through even things like, what should you eat? <laughs> you know, how should you meditate? Like these basics based on that time. So I feel like if I didn't do that, if I didn't address the Me Too movement or the racism and the inequality and the wars, then I'm just closing my eyes and I'm saying Rama, 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 I'm just chanting and I'm helping millions of people bypass. Mm. Just, just bypass. But that's not a legacy I come from. My grandfather and my great-grandfather also spun the charka when they were trying to weave their own cloth in a way to tell the British that we don't need to buy cloth from you. Mm. 
And my great grandfather gave the slogan in 1900 in India, which said Sarvarogyam Sarvamukti, which meant arogyam or health for all of mind, body, soul, but mukti too. And people, pe mukti had a double edge because it's like, is it spiritual mukti or is it freedom from colonial? you know, empire, mukti. So I come from a family, we are householder sages, and we come from a family that has always been alert to the needs of our times, to the pains of our people, and to the circumstances that are also affecting us. And when my grandfather, after spending time in the Himalayas, came back, he had a period of silence extended period of silence and it took him a while, but then he really gave himself to social activism along with spiritual enlightenment of his students and through his discourses and through his books, etc. So I'm very conscious and the more conscious I have become of it, the more I am walking that fine line between being a being a spokesperson for the tradition, that it's not irrelevant, that it may be misunderstood, that it's being dumbed down a bit, or it's being wrapped up in the false guru disciple kind of veneer, which, which is not our original tradition. In our original tradition, gurus are never God. Guru is only a path sure to God. We ourselves were devotees. My ancestors were always devotees of God. They were gods themselves. This is a more new phenomena. So I try and through my role modeling and through my writing, try to humbly put my two cents forward that let's not be done with guru or guru concept. Let's just rethink it and let's be smart, you know, like, we even need the arithmetic guru or we need the Swami Vivekanandas and we need the Ekatolis, the modern gurus. Of we need them. And let's be done with the darkness. And then that modern activism in my life is what I owe to this planet. Thank you for that. Um, you talked about your family, and if you don't mind, I'm going to, uh, I was very moved in, in reading the introduction to the book, uh, where you talk about your parents, your late mother and your father, and uh, the effect they had on you, which, and, and you eventually became the first female uh, lineage holder, which, you know, is a uh, a comment in and of itself. Tell us about your, your upbringing and, and how it prepared you for the role you've taken on. My grandfather and my great-grandfather, both of them were illustrious, um, known householder, sadhu, we call it sadhu or sage parampara. Sadhu is not exactly a rishi, but they are also carrying the samadhi, like a balanced state of mind to be able to take us from darkness to light. And they embodied in their life. My great grandfather uh, compiled the Adi Bhagavad Gita. My grandfather wrote many commentaries, but in Hindi, 
and was uh, leading forward the works of Swami Ramatit Tirtha. So we've had a lot of work in our family around the Gita, around the Upanishads. And my personal grandfather fell in love with Ayurveda too. And that's how I got the endowment of Ayurveda in my life. More of its philosophy and spirituality and lifestyle more than like actually giving drugs, Ayurvedic drugs to fix something. And now I find that that's the best kind of Ayurveda. When my father came along, India had become independent. And my father, while he was trained in Bhagavad Gita and Sanskrit and all of that, he did not go through that same path. And he instead became a playwright and a bureaucrat and an ambassador for the country. So he rose to really great heights in his, in his career. Uh, in, in, in the government of India, but he's more known for his books, which have been translated in every Indian language that are taught in every university in India. He was just given honor, not just a couple of years ago, given the Padma Shri, which is the highest honor in the land of India for creative people. And he has pretty much been honored and decorated by every every award and every title possible for his contribution. And it's interesting that we live that non-dual life. For example, we used to publish a magazine in the early 1900s called Vivaharik Vedanta, means everyday Vedanta. And we would have anecdotes of people waking up to that one reality in, um, you know, in talking to a person of a lower caste or someone like that to kind of bring that alive. My grandfather had the sweeper uh, wash himself in the river Sarayu, considered sacred in our hometown, and then cook for the whole family. Uh, it upset the ladies in the family, but, the, but my grandfather was like, no, we're not going to believe in these false distinctions of caste and creed or race, and we're all going to be one. And so we'd, we'd have these dramatic movements in our, in our own home where we were going to lead a progressive life because the Veda wanted us to lead it. And we were people who are ready to truly embody the Veda, not just by name, but by spirit. So when my mother came along, um, she found this beautiful family to respect her and especially my father, a deeply progressive person. But my mother only lived till the age of 10, but prior to, prior to passing away from a congenital heart condition that she was born with, she would tell me these bedtime stories, Phil, that were about the goddess triumphing uh, over evil or over evil intentions for the world. She, she was like a superheroine. I didn't know those words like a super and a heroine. I didn't know English period, but I know that she really drummed it into my DNA and she and I would do a couple of home cars at that time. And that was not a very wise parenting choice because she'd fall asleep and I'd be awake with my heart beating with excitement. And I think all of that stayed with me. And even before she passed, because she really had a lot of enjoy in her heart pain, she knew she was going. And I don't know why she chose to tell me that the goddess is with me and that I'll never be alone. And I remember those moments before she became silent. And, and I think um, she, 
she left me in the hands of a greater mother and uh, her mother and my mother, all of ours mothers, your mother. And I started developing a relationship with mom because we had a temple of mother, divine mother Durga in our home. And I started spending time with her, talking to her, telling her about my school problems. Mm -hmm. Like I said, I had a private relationship with Ma until she told me to write this book. And now I'm talking about her. That's beautiful. Thank you. Um, one last question. Um, the book, the subtitle is Every Woman's Guide to Becoming Unapologetically Powerful, Prosperous, and Peaceful. You're addressing women, you're addressing the need of the time for women to step forward and become true to their nature and to uh, take different roles in, in, in the culture. What about the men? Can men benefit from this to the extent that the divine feminine is within and, and the energies of the, the goddesses you write about are within women? They are also, I would assume, within people with bodies like mine. What, is, what do you want to say to men in this context? To all men who are listening and will listen and to all people of non-binary gender, though the title says women because it's it, we wanted to reach out to a specific audience. Again and again throughout the book, I go to great extent to mention that this book is for everyone because the Divine Mother is everyone's mother and as self or as pure consciousness, which is powerful, infinitely so, she dwells in each one of us. And, and I do clarify that patriarchy is not about men versus women. It's really about the, the people who fall for false beliefs. And it's often women who are the worst patriarchic, <laughs> you know, agents of patriarchy than even men. So it could be people on this side of the line who believe in power games, who believe in more and less or haves and have nots. And it's the other side, which are power sharers. And just really quickly, these two mythological characters that I talk about, Asuras and Devas, Asura is a dark and Deva is a light beings. They both love power. They both want Shakti. They both worship the divine mother. The difference between them is what they do with the power. Asuras let the power go to their head and it makes them arrogant and selfish and entitled and even cruel and usurpers of others' power. Whereas devas allow this power to um, help them help others and themselves become prosperous and share that prosperity and make this planet a better place to live. And anybody of any gender could be on this side or that side of the power divide. I hope this book is read by all beings and it helps them roar. <laughs> Thank you for that. And everybody, the book again is Roar Like a Goddess. Men and women will benefit from it. And I hope uh, you learn from it and uh, help the rest of us come to a world where there are fewer asuras.
as they are uh, everywhere these days. Um, Acharya, thank you so much. Good luck with the book. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. Uh, we'll have you back again, I'm sure. And everybody listening, uh, get a copy of Roar Like a Goddess. And if you are so moved to uh, contribute to the future of Spirit Matters so we can continue, please subscribe. It is free. Everything in our archive is free. We want to keep it that way. And if you uh, want to help us perpetuate that, you can click on the contribute button. See you next time. Thanks for listening. Namaste.